At the end of the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, Karch Karai and his American teammates had just finished off the Soviet Union in four games to capture the men's volleyball gold medal. The greatest player in the world always made the biggest plays, often hearing his father Laszlo's voice in his head, Rise and think, Karch. Rise and think. It was a second time Karch had won gold, but this one over the Soviets was particularly sweet. Karch, you see, was an American because Laszlo had left Hungary after taking part in the 1956 Hungarian Revolution against the Soviets. What goes around comes around. I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, sports historians. Welcome to the audio video podcast, episode number 39 of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. It's the first of our five-part series on the greatest volleyball player of all time, the three-time Olympic gold medal winner and the current head coach of the USA Women's National Team. Yep, you heard that right. Impressive, huh? There's so much more. Karch has so much success. In fact, we have decided to call this series a Karai July. And thank God this particular July has five Thursdays in it. By the way, that's yet another record that Karch has set. He becomes the first Sports Stories guest to have five episodes in a series. The man is a machine. That Hungarian revolution in 1956 was the backdrop for one of the most famous Olympic games ever played. Hungary versus the Soviet Union in water polo. At those Melbourne Summer Games, Blood in the water, they called it. Well worth the search. Karch addresses his dad's role in that student uprising, which is an incredible story, along with so much more in this whole series. But before we go much further, we need to say hello to the producer for the top video podcast in the Sentinella Adobe Corridor, the director of the SSDL 5 slate of shows on YouTube, and the winner of the 2018 AAU President's National Leadership Award for Outstanding Service, my quarantine partner for life, Christine Jimbo. Hi, everybody. Um, I feel like my titles list gets longer each time, too. Yeah, they do. <laughs> okay, look, just look, making looking, sure looking that's... For those. I'm just looking for the pay raise that goes along with it. <laughs> it's, yeah, we'll double your pay. <laughs> Thank you. I'll look for it in my next <laughs> paycheck. Uh, okay, so I'm here to remind you to get to our social media sites, uh, you can get to all of our social media by hitting the website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. And an easy search is Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. That's Denny like the restaurant, Lennon like the Beatle. And I also want to tell you that we are showing our podcasts on a new platform, mm -hmm. the High School Narrative. Mm -hmm. And you can get there by the hsnarrative.com. Mm -hmm. And so we're distributing some of our content in their platforms, and we think they're a really kind of fun partner that's going to do some good. No doubt. Um, also want to encourage you to visit our East Bay store. We got some yes. uh, gear there. We'll be uh, loading up more gear as time goes by. And I encourage you, if you're not a huge fan of the muscle tees, mm. email us at info at sportsstoriespodcast.com and tell us what kind of clothes you want to see on there. We put that on. That's the box cobbler series. 
Right. Yeah. Hats, shoes, whatever you think you want to see on that site, uh, send us an email. Let and us we'll know. We'll get that up there. Please follow me on Twitter at Sports Stories DL. Besides plenty of top level tweets, my uh, Twitter account is where the voting will take place for the matchups of the first ever East Bay 7428 shootout. Well, if you don't know what that is, you can catch up on my Twitter or uh, you can read my blog. Or any of our social media accounts will be announcing that projected start of July 6 on that one. It's going to be good. This interview was quite special for me. I certainly had known Karch, who's four years older than me, not only because I was a volleyball and Olympic Games fans, but I had teamed uh, with Karch about 15 years ago. Yeah, I teamed with him. It wasn't in volleyball. It was in a promotional tour. We traveled around and promoted the sport of beach volleyball. I had a first-hand look at how the greatest of all time works, and it was impressive to say the least. It was also mind-boggling to watch how the rest of the volleyball world reacted to him. I want to make sure I note here what a nice man Karch is, All, always, always thoughtful and kind to those who came into contact with him. In case I haven't supported the idea that Karch is the greatest volleyball player of all time, let's consider just a couple of the highlights. He was a CIF high school volleyball champ while playing in California in high school at Santa Barbara High School. He was a four-time All-American and a three-time NCAA champ at UCLA. His teams went 124 and five. All right, he's a three-time Olympic volleyball gold medal winner, two indoor, one on the beach, only player to win gold at both. He was named the FIVB's best player of the 20th century. Okay, that's pretty definitive. Uh, FIVB is the sanctioning body of all of uh, volleyball throughout the world. Six-time AVP Most Valuable Player. The AVP is the Pro Domestic Tour of Beach Volleyball. He has a record 148 wins. That means he won the tournament. 148 wins over 28 seasons. He played until he was in his mid-40s and was still dominating. I'm leaving out so much, but it is certainly safe to say he transcended his sport the way Jordan and Tiger transcended theirs. In this first installment, we hear about Laszlo in Hungary and his parents moving to Santa Barbara. We hear about Karch uh, in his youth. We also hear about his time at Santa Barbara High School playing for the one and only Rick Olmstead. So now it's time for part one of our five-part Karai July. From the USA Volleyball National Team Center in Anaheim, California, here is our Sports Stories interview with the greatest volleyball player ever, Karch Karai. Please note this interview was recorded on January 17th, 2020. You know, I'm not sure when um, we first kind of like bumped in or, or got to know one another, but something I found kind of fun um, recently, I was duping over a lot of old videos. And do you remember how we used to run that backyard volleyball tournament in Venice? We used to run in a series of backyards. Yes, I do remember that. Yep. And we made a big deal out of it, of course, um, being Lennon's. So we would do a day before inside the VBC mm -hmm. and I did this fake phone call a la Bob Newhart style pretending that you were calling in mm -hmm. and I said I Karch who I'm <laughs> sorry but the tournament's full oh yeah I like that <laughs> sorry sorry we don't have room for you Karch um so I was going to do this in kind of like a chronological order okay if you're good with that and one of the things I found interesting um that I think and, and what's the basic theme we're, uh, we're just going to tell your series the, here. Uh, the basic theme is we're telling unique and uplifting sports stories. Okay. Um, and then putting some historical and social context to it. 
Okay, great. Yeah, and so that's what we've been doing with our guests, and, and we're looking Hopefully forward to doing Hopefully I can that. add to that a little. We're going to try to have a Karai July. All right. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, good I think good the, month this year. I think the story starts around, um, is the way I was looking at it, you know, in the 56, in the Hungarian um, National Re- Revolt, mm-hmm. like your father um, was, was involved in that, huh? Yeah. He was 21 years old at the time. He was a college student and living in Budapest, which is uh, the capital of Hungary. Um, And it was a really exciting time for Hungarians because for many years they had, especially after World War II, they had Uh essentially been a puppet country, a puppet government Uh of the Soviet Union. And they had never had their own elections, gotten to pick their own uh, legislators and representatives and representative government. So uh, as he was one of tens of thousands of students who started a peaceful protest to demand that. And the Soviet Union held back. um, And the world was watching this unfold. And right. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. it all over here. It was a really exciting time for Hungarians for about a 10-day, two-week period. They thought they were going to go from um, a total dictatorship controlled by another country to taking back ownership of their own country. Right. And so he would walk through the neighborhood every day and... Um, when you live in a totalitarian state, even if it's controlled by another country, um, everybody keeps an eye. The, the government and its agents keep an eye on everybody. So mm-hmm. his block, as every block did, had basically a spy who would report the goings and comings mm. of anybody in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So he would walk every day to these peaceful protests, upward of 100,000 students, and people would come out to these. Yeah. And every day he would look up because he knew which apartment this person lived in, and he could see uh, this agent um, keeping an eye on people but looking through the slit in the curtain because the agent at this point doesn't know if he's going to be thrown out. Oh, wow. The existing sure. uh, puppet regime is now in danger of losing their power, maybe getting removed from the country, or if the protests turn violent, it could be worse. And so he could, s- my dad could see his goings and comings being tracked every day. Wow. Um, at some point, about two weeks in, this was late October, early November mm-hmm. uh, of 1956, the Soviets decided we've had enough of this mm-hmm. we're sending in our tanks and we're going to crush this thing mm-hmm. and that's when he knew he had to leave because okay. his choices were stay be tortured and executed or leave because he knew he'd been tracked and he was yeah. clearly and proudly joining these uh these um these peaceful protests these student protests wow. so he had to escape and say goodbye to his family his younger sister um, run at nighttime. I think one time he ta- told me about a, he was um, a lot of, oh, little K-9 
cafes or more like trattorias, like little family restaurants would have the restaurant in the downstairs mm -hmm. and their living quarters upstairs. And of course, Hungarians looked out for each other. So his, he's running toward the border at, at times he would be staying, hiding up above and look through the floorboards and see military people coming through looking for anybody who was on the run. My goodness. But he eventually made it through, um, uh, had to run through minefields and... Uh, he did have a rifle. A lot of the students, while it was peaceful, they were afraid that they were going to get attacked, so mm -hmm. they carried arms sometimes. So he made it to the Austrian border, turned in his weapon, and eventually ended up in this country, got a um, a scholarship from the Lutheran Church. I think it was like a, a, uh. a, a thousand dollars to go to Wayne State University in Detroit, in Detroit, eventually transferred to University of Michigan. Okay. Got his undergrad degree there, his master's in civil engineering, met my mom, most importantly of all, and then got eventually his medical uh, credential. Wow, that's a lot for a 21 and then... To leave your family behind. leave all that behind. And um, part of it was, uh, this is how brutal the regime was, uh, they would let his mom come to visit us mm -hmm. in the 60s, but his dad was still valuable to them mm. as a worker. So they didn't let him come visit until he was retired. Unbelievable. Uh, so that was the first time he got to see his dad was, uh, I don't know what, uh, uh, probably f 15, 17 years later. Unreal. I find it interesting, the intersection of um, athletics, and in particular the Olympics and history, because what was only a couple months after that in Melbourne was when the water polo, um, Hungary and Russia, had their, their that battle in the in the pool. Yeah. And um, you know they had to what, cancel the game I think at after the crowd kind of turned against the Soviet Union's team. You bring it up and I'm getting more goosebumps. There's a great movie and I'm forgetting what it is. It's a documentary. It's something about fury. I've mm. got to look it up. Um, yeah. I might remember it as we're talking. But anyway, uh, Freedom's Fury. Freedom's Fury. Okay. So I would recommend it to people. Um, at the same time this was going on and my dad was involved in uh, as tens of thousands of mostly college students were also involved in these protests. Mm -hmm. The Hungarian water polo team was in, had to go in hiding in the hills um, because they didn't know what was going to happen here. Wow. And the backstory there wow. is the Hungarian water polo team was the best in the world. Yeah. Hungarians are really good Clearly. at some water sports, especially the... Um, the swim medleys, they have mm -hmm. a lot of people who swim all four strokes really well. They're just a water-loving people, great rivers and, right. and all of that there. They were the water defending uh, gold medal champs, I think, they, in They water were polo. the best in the world. Mm -hmm. So, but unfortunately, the Soviet Union called the shots in Hungary. And they said uh, they forced the Hungarian water polo team, the best team in the world, to open their practice and everything about their program to, to the, the Russian team, to the Soviet Union team, and just said, wow. we don't care if you don't like it. We are sending our team, and they get to watch everything you do, and then they would copy it and do it every afternoon. So clearly, yeah. the Hungarians weren't too happy with this. Being forced to teach their um, oppressors, their oppressors mm -hmm. uh, to be great at water polo. So then 
um, they get to Australia and now, and there's so much commotion and chaos in Hungary, the Hungarian team didn't know um, what was going to result. Some of them decided when they got to Australia that they would never go back because they were afraid of the, facing the same thing that my dad. And, and, and Australia lots of had some expats there, I think. Yes. And, 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 and yeah. so they ended up, some people decided never to come back, but they ended up having an epic yeah. water polo battle. And there's a famous shot. You could find it on uh, okay. by doing a quick search of the Hungarian water polo player coming out of the oh, water took a shot. and blood just pouring down his mm -hmm. face. The pool turned pink mm -hmm. because the Hungarians were like, blood there is the no way. We, these guys and their government, not these guys, their government their forced government. us to teach them everything we the know. We are not going to let them. Fans came down heavy on the Russians there. Yeah. And, and, and so they ended up winning, which was awesome. Yeah. But um, it was a period of time where it's phenomenal that they even won because while they were in hiding in the hills, they didn't have a pool. They're just sitting in a hotel trying to Jeez. work out with no pool and none of their normal equipment as they went into hiding. So they went for weeks without proper training and still figured out a way to win. I think it was in late November, early December of that Olympic year. But it was yeah. the most epic water polo battle right. in history because of the, the governments and the politics behind no, no it. No doubt about it. We interrupt this podcast to bring you a commercial. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon aims to bring its subscribers interesting, unique, and uplifting stories. You can find us at sportsstoriespodcast.com. We drop audio, video podcasts every Thursday and go live at 5 on YouTube four nights a week. That's Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. And now back to our interview. So your father obviously is influenced by all of that. And so you're born, I think, in, in 1960 or so, Michigan. But you come, you come out west and then... About six years old is when he starts to play a little volleyball with you because he was a, a player on his junior national team. Yep. He was a, uh, a good player in Hungary, and the sport at that time had a reasonable following in Hungary. Mm -hmm. And so he played on the junior national team, and when he came to this country, he kept playing even though there weren't tons of places to play in Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, but he kept it going. He, he was a member of the Ann Arbor YMCA team, like the okay. adult team that would go sure. to USA Volleyball Adult Nationals. Mm -hmm. And they would do all right there, and they would play against club teams from some of the universities like Michigan State. And mm -hmm. so uh, part of our time together was he worked really hard in medical school. He would spend, you know, uh, just the whole week he'd be buried with things. But mm -hmm. he kept his volleyball going. So early in Saturday mornings, maybe 4 a.m., something like that, he and I would uh, jump in the car, really cold winters in Michigan, <laughs> and drive bad. all over the state to Saginaw and Flint and Kalamazoo and just go to these Saturday tournaments. And I would um, follow him around and be with his team, just kind of tag along. A lot of times they were playing, so I might bump the ball against the wall to myself or... A lot of those old gyms have the indoor tracks that yeah. run around yeah. the upper level. They're really uh, cool uh, with the bank at the, yeah, at the yeah. curves. Mm -hmm. And so I would just goof Athletic around there and, and his, his teammates and he would play a little pepper with me. 
and then eventually when he finished medical school um, he had a what you do even still out of med school you do your year of internship your mm-hmm. first year beyond and you start specializing in what form of medicine you're going to uh, end up being uh, a doctor at so uh, he and my mom stumbled upon Santa Barbara, mm. fell in love with it, made a beeline to the, um, just looked it up in the phone book. Where's the nearest hospital? I'm going to apply here to see if I can do an internship. And he applied. That's and, what brought him out. And uh, yeah, they were just kind of driving through town, exploring California. And they fell in love with, with Santa Barbara and just oh, applied, got it. And so for that one year, he got his first consistent taste of beach volleyball and fell in love. Well, they fell in love with Santa Barbara. Sure. We all did. I was only six. It's easy for me to fall in love with mm-hmm. uh, the, beach the beach and all of that <laughs> yeah. stuff. So um, that was my second grade year. And so he he would go down to East Beach every weekend, even though he was working like, you know, 80, 90, 100-hour weeks as an intern. Uh, but again, that was our family time together was on the weekends. And we'd play, we'd bump it back and forth. Uh, eventually... Uh, spent some more time back there because we had to go back to, we went back to Michigan for mm. residency, but spent some more time there. First time I ever played on a court was when I was nine uh, against my dad. He had a, he had good, a lot of good friends that okay. he knew there and picked the, the best player who was willing to play with us and put that best player with me to help me out. Because it was, sure. this is at a time when there are no small courts, nope. low nets or anything like that. So just playing on an adult court. Uh, nine years old. That's the first time I remember playing. I, get, I played with a guy who was really well known in East Beach circles. He was the un, uh, the unofficial quote mayor of East Beach, Bill Conway. His okay. name was Seaway, and he was a great A double A player. And so, nice. got to play with them. Uh, eventually, <laughs> my dad and I played in our first tournament at 11 years, 11 old, years at old at Corona Del Mar, and then uh, kept going from there. But some great <laughs> times. So he was my first teammate, my first partner for uh, for four or five years of actual competition in volleyball. There has to be, there's some level of osmosis I think that takes place too. I kind of I, you know just viewed it in different sports, but I think when you're really young like that and you hang around and you you get modeled in front of you. Not only good technique, but good players, which you're automatically drawn to, but just how people love the sport. Yeah. There's something about that, I think, when you're really when you're really young that'll cement in you. There was no money in volleyball. There was no... There was Olympic indoor volleyball, but mm-hmm. there was no beach volleyball in the Olympics yet. So there was really nothing... Um, No extrinsic reward to play for. So you're right. Everybody who was playing those weekend tournaments, and in those days, it was all day Saturday and all day Sunday, and people couldn't get enough of volleyball. Couldn't get enough. Go to Playa del Rey where Pete Field and uh, Gene Popko would run their tournaments, and it'd be like 128 (laughs) or more teams. And um, But everybody was in it just to get better, to try to win the next game, to get a rating, maybe get your B rating and eventually work up to try to get your AAA rating. Uh, But you're right. I think one of the things that turned out to be a real advantage for me, even though uh, I didn't know it at the time, was there was no club volleyball, Mm -hmm. no junior volleyball. That turned out to be great because when I was 12, nobody... And we we were playing in tournaments. We were only playing grown men, mm-hmm. and no grown man that I know of wants to lose to a 12-year-old nope. kid. 
So they were not holding back against me. And so, A, they were tough on me because there's no way they want to lose to a 12-year-old kid. Their friends are going to heckle them for the next year. That's right. B, when you see adults playing, you see them doing it close to the way it should be done as opposed to other 12-year-olds who are just learning and flailing around. And so I got to see a lot of what it should look like, Mm -hmm. which helped me. They were models for me. And also helped me just learn to anticipate and read the game because mm. I got a lot more chances at seeing what it would look like all through my career. But the average 12-year-old doesn't get to see that now because she or he, uh, they're playing they're against their own, age group. their own age group. And everybody's just trying to figure things out so they don't get as many chances to see what it should look like and to learn how to anticipate what comes from somebody who plays the way it should look like. So by the time you get to Santa Barbara High School, mm-hmm. you're, uh, you know, you've you've developed your skills, as has your best buddy John Hanley. Yeah. Right. And um, and somehow you get uh, Rick Olmstead over there to take over the program. Yeah. Yep. And uh, Rick said, he said something to the effect of coaching Karch and John. He threw John in there, of course, and he said was both the best and the worst thing that could have happened to me. <laughs> It was the best because these guys were so good and they worked so hard and we had great success. It was the worst because nobody worked like they did once they left and it drove me out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> I love Coach Rick. He, we loved having him as, a, uh, as our high school coach there uh-huh. uh, at Santa Barbara High School. In those days, I can't even remember now Santa Barbara, I should know this, but I don't. In those days, it was three years of high school and mm-hmm. three years of right. middle school. So we played as 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. Mm -hmm. And his intensity was phenomenal, Coach Rick. Um, His hunger to see us do as well as we could possibly do, but probably most of all, he instilled in us uh, just a a crazy work ethic. Not Mm -hmm. that we didn't already know how to work hard, but he made demands of us, and we fulfilled those demands, and it just... Uh, we learned we were capable of doing more than we thought. So, for example, um, in at that time, there was no club volleyball, um, as I said before. And so in the fall, he gave us these workouts to yeah. do. And we would do them uh, in the buddy system so that we could hold each other accountable, make mm-hmm. sure everybody was doing it. And it was just a little, they're only now renovating. I was back a few months ago and saw it. But they had a tiny little football stadium with 10... It was like cement block oh, steps. Yeah. yeah, I know. So, so you could sit on these rows, uh, but you could also do workouts on them because they were higher than the average step. They were like two and a half steps high. Yeah, yeah. And so our workout, uh, our average workout in those fall voluntary workouts was <laughs> to do 100 stadiums, which is 1,000 jumps. Wow. So we would... Um, run 20, um, hop 20 with two feet, um, (laughs) hop 20 with the left, hop 20 with the right, and then finally hop up two, down one with two. And so 100 stadiums, 1,000 jumps of various sorts, and that would be an example of what we would do. Or he would say, all right, now you guys are running. Uh, He figured out it was about a, a little over a mile run. We would run from campus and have to go down on Milpas, which is one of the main ways to get mm-hmm. into Santa Barbara. When you get in, you get 
uh, get in town, you take the Milpas exit, and you go north, and you're taking it towards yeah. Santa Barbara High. And so he would have us run down and touch the McDonald's okay. and come back. But sometimes, if we were playing a weaker opponent, we would be doing that at a time when the opponent would have been driving up Milpas. <laughs> so we were under <laughs> orders not to drive along Milpas. We had to pop out and just touch McDonald's and then go on, on the back streets because yeah. we were also not in the business of humiliating yeah. our opponents. Which Rick is a but we had guy. huge challenges there in terms of what he asked of us, demanded of us physically, and that was the number one lesson that I that I always carried on uh, from Rick and loved, uh, just really blessed to have a great coach in Rick Olmstead and yeah. also other great coaches like Al Skates at UCLA, Doug Beal and Bill Neville and Marv Dunphy sure. with USA. And, you did, um, you but, did have a but Rick have a was line the first non-family coach because my dad was my teammate and also my coach early. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit heroesmovementusa.org for more information. Sports Stories, along with thousands of people across the country, also supports the My Stuff Bags Foundation, a nonprofit that provides traumatized children with new belongings and new hope. Learn more at mystuffbags.org. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Christine Jimbo and Marley Rice. Sports Stories is edited by Bob McCall. Additional staff include Ray Castro, Teresa Dolan, Jake Downey, Carlos Haro, and Buck Magic Lennon. Mama... Just watched a show. It's called Sports Stories with Danny. Mama, life's been good for me. Cause you know I'm just a big baby. Sports Stories. Sports Stories with Danny Lennon. At five o'clock. Oh, wait, that's my feeding time. Check it out, book.